0: This is Tiger Hall. The year is 1975 and we're in Iceland. It's the 24th of October, a day that Icelandic men will soon call the Long Friday. Why? The women are having the day off. Children are running riot. Schools and factories have shut down. Supermarkets have run out of sausages, the only thing men know how to cook. You see, the UN had declared 1975 as women's year, and the women of Iceland were determined to make this count. On the 24th of October, it was decided no woman would do any work. No paid work, but also no childcare, cooking, cleaning. The invisible work that I'm sure every one of you listening knows make our societies function. A year later, Iceland passed the Gender Equality Act, which outlawed sex discrimination. The country has also been named by The Economist to be the best country to be a working woman. All around the world, this invisible work is one very big element of what makes being a working mother so challenging. It's unpaid, it's a disaster if no one does it, and globally, women spend three to six hours on it a day, compared to a man's average of 30 minutes to two hours. For this next conversation, I'm going to be speaking to Mary Beth Ferrante. A few years ago, Mary Beth was a senior vice president at a major bank, but after returning to work after maternity leave, was shocked to find how little understanding and empathy existed for her at this stage of life. She was inspired to start Work360, an advisory, training and coaching platform that works with people, leaders and managers to become the empathetic leaders needed for the future of work. This invisible work, like I mentioned in the Iceland story, is going to come up in this conversation, and the mental load that's been previously mentioned in the trail. We're also going to talk about the disconnect between organisations and mums, and the transition back into work after maternity. I ultimately want to find out from Marybeth how we can make our workplaces more inclusive. I've got a lot of ground I want to cover with her, so let's get going. Marybeth why is being a working mother still so shit? Ah,
1: oh, such a great question, right? In my opinion, I believe it is simply because there are too many people that it will not serve if it changes. And it ultimately comes down to power. And at the systemic levels, the people in power do not want to give space for those of us that are caregivers to make it easier. And I think um it's really still shit because to be honest, there was a um, a quote where someone had said, how great is it that we made women believe that they're better at wiping asses and changing diapers. That's amazing. We made you all believe that you're just so talented at this and we can't handle it. So it serves men to not have to make that shift and not have to do the care work. And so I think there's a lot of systemic sexism and gender bias and patriarchy embedded in it.
0: What an answer. I think this might be my favorite answer to this question of the whole trail so far. (laughs) It's got wiping asses in there right up front.
1: (laughs) You know, (laughs) <laughs> it's, just, it's, how, uh, uh, it's been a long week I, my kids are sick I've done a lot of that lately it's just really rough
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear sorry sorry about your busy week okay so so one thing that I know you've written about and you speak about is this disconnect between organizations and moms can you tell us a bit more about that
1: yeah I think the biggest problem is it is a disconnect really between leadership and moms. So we look at leaders across most of our organizations, most of our governments. They are predominantly male, predominantly 65, 70-year-old plus male men, oftentimes white men as well. So that really gives people a certain expectation of how they live their lives. And 70 plus percent of those leaders have a stay at home partner. They have someone who handled everything in the home for them. They made it possible for them to work long hours. They made it possible for them to be able to really dig in at work and for them to solely focus on it. And so they don't, they really don't understand the needs of working parents today because they just didn't live it. And so maybe, maybe they can kind of get it. If they really sit down and think about it, but they didn't go through it, they didn't experience it. And so it just isn't also top of mind. It might not be something they necessarily come into contact with on on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So I think that is the biggest challenge is really the education from a generational gap and really helping people kind of starting to close that. A lot of people really focus on, well, how do we then get more women in leadership? How do we get more women in government? And I do think that that will make a big difference. But we also need to get more men to understand and feel comfortable in care roles, feeling like they can, you know, be that parent who can talk about. Uh, their caregiving responsibilities who can talk about you know what it means to be a new dad and caring for a baby or taking their time taking their paternity leave if they have access to it mm-hmm. and being able to share those stories so that it does become more normalized and it's not a just about the new mom either and it becomes just a expectation for most employees because within most organizations, about eighty-five percent of your of your employees will become a parent
0: yeah. at some point. Yeah. So uh, earlier in this trail I spoke to Lindsay Blakey, who's an MD of HR at Standard Chartered. And one thing that's that's interesting about her family setup is that she's the breadwinner and her husband is a stay at home dad. And she said that like when she tells people this, people have thought that she's joking.
1: Yeah. Totally. Like, like people like, Absolutely. people just like, don't get it. They literally don't understand. I mean, I think it's hilarious because when my first daughter was born, I was also the breadwinner in our family. Now we are pretty equally split at the moment. So, you know, we're we're bread sharers, I guess they call it. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was the breadwinner at the time and I remember that my my husband went to his boss and you know, shared the news that we were expecting and that I was pregnant. And his boss immediately said, like, wow, that's fantastic news. We're going to have to get you a raise. And I was shocked. I was so blown away. I'm like, are we in 1950s Mad Men? But also, yes, please go get that raise. (laughs) Like, I mean, I still want you to get the raise. (laughs) We need the money, of course. Mm. But it's so interesting how there is that expectation around what it means to show up. And you know, I do a lot of work with Eve Rodsky in Fair Play, which is a book that she wrote and it's a system we the Fair Play method. And mm-hmm. as part of that, we talk a lot about the roles that we all play. It's um you know, we're a partner, a professional, and a parent, right? But for for men, they feel like instead of really being a parent, they're the procreator. Instead of the professional, they're the provider. Instead of a partner, they're the protector. And so it's like this really interesting shift of how can we kind of refocus and think about, well, in our relationships today, and particularly in heteronormative relationships, like how can we show up um, and be really true partners and both show up as parents to our children so that we can have more equitable, not equal, because it's never going to be equal. That's just hard and impossible and would cause a lot of challenges that would take too much time out of our days anyway, Mm -hmm. but more equitable relationships and would really play to each other's strengths too. Mm, That's interesting you say that because I mean, I keep
0: using the word equality as if that's what we should all be striving for, but perhaps that's not what we should be striving for.
1: Well, I think it's unique to the family when we think about it. I think the equality piece of it is the equal opportunity to build our family structures the way that we want to and to prioritize our career and family strategy in a way that makes sense for what we want and our our own unique goals. Where I think it becomes more about the equitable balance is it's always dependent, you know, on kind of the give and take of if, for example, I'm really stepping into a new role or, you know, gaining a new client or have a really big project coming up that I'm working on, well, then I'm going to lean on my partner to step up more in the caregiving responsibility. Mm. And then that might shift as he's going for a promotion or I'm, you know, maybe Really familiar with my role. I've been doing it for a couple of years or something like that. So I think there's always a little bit of give and take, and also as your children's needs change around how you may lean in or to different priorities for your family. But ultimately, I think it's about giving everyone the the opportunity to think about their career and their family in a integrated way and with a kind of totality of it, right? The idea that you can think about both people's careers, both um, people's roles as as parents and partners and and what ultimately everyone wants to gain out of those relationships.
0: Mm. Yeah, so true, so interesting. What do you think the utopia is for our workplaces in in
1: relation to all this? And what are the barriers to us getting there? So many barriers. honestly think that utopia is true boundaries. It may sound so simple, but if we really respected people's boundaries, if we let people actually say, I'm off when I'm off. My weekends are for me. I am able to shut down in the evenings or have non-work hours when I don't need to be present or checking Slack or email or whatever IM tool or connectivity tool that your organization uses, and you're able to instead be present for your family, the things that are important to to you personally, to be excited about your own life and participating with your community and your, your friendships. That, to me, is pretty exciting and is not something that we have really had the benefit of over the last couple decades. Uh, I remember, you know, I'm going to age myself here, but being so excited to get a BlackBerry because it felt like, oh my gosh, I've gotten to this level in my career where I am so important that I need <laughs> to be contacted all the time. Like, oh, Like, how is that a thing where I was excited to be contacted all the time? Like, no, thank you. Take it back. I don't want it. (laughs) Like, I'm good. You know, I, I, I really think if we can start by just having organizations that truly respect people's time and recognize that everyone's time actually is equal, we all only have 24 hours in a day, and not every moment of that should be spent at work that
0: would be a game changer. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean about the BlackBerry. I remember in my early 20s, my friend got a BlackBerry from work and I was so, God, oh, it seems so grown up. She's so important, but she hated exactly. it, of course.
1: Yes. It's awful. <laughs> oh,
0: terrible, terrible. <laughs> um, Okay. One thing I wanted to ask you about, I was re-listening last week to a conversation I had with Kaushik Rajkapal, who's the CHRO at PayPal. Amazing, amazing guy. Mm -hmm. I was asking him about what doesn't work well for encouraging an inclusive culture. And he said that a mistake they've made in the past and that people often make is giving people too much theory for how to be inclusive. So like a very well-intentioned training, but it's not interactive, it's mostly just theory and, and words. And he was saying that without context, without examples, it just doesn't amount to anything. You've got to get people to put themselves in other people's shoes and to appreciate what the other person is is feeling and going through. How can we do this for working mums?
1: Yep, absolutely. I love this question. The very first time that I did a training on parental leave, I had drummed up this whole exciting training and had all these incredible examples and had this incredible role-playing exercise where everyone was assigned a different, you know, role that a hat they had to put on. (laughs) literally. And they were, you know, assigned whether they were the person who was pregnant or maybe someone who has recently returned to work or the 25-year-old who had to take on the additional work and was very annoyed and Mm -hmm. frustrated. And so they all got these little cards and had to play out the scenario. And it was a resounding success. And it also took two and a half hours. And the feedback from the CHRO was, this is amazing. This was so fantastic. How can we scale this in our 30,000-person organization? We cannot pull everyone out for three-hour, half-day workshops. And we don't have the funds and the budget to do that. And so I think this is one of the biggest challenges. There's obviously some technology that I think helps, but we've all sat through too many on-demand video trainings, even when they act it out and you're kind of just hitting the button Mm -hmm. to go next, to go next, right? So, there is something about actually taking on that role-playing and being able to do it and go through the motions yourself. Mm -hmm. But it is hard to scale that. So, what we have done at Work360 that I do think is really helpful is not only do we provide coaching to the employee and we do kind of these, these interactive trainings to the managers that are much more scaled down. They're an hour now. Um, but we provide coaching for the managers. So they come in with real life scenarios. So they may not come in preemptively, but when they're in it with their employee, When they're confused or they have concerns or they're not really sure how to navigate a situation, they have their coach there to support them and help them navigate through it. And so they have that third-party outsider perspective who can really connect with them and say, what do you think is going on here? What do you think is going on with your employee How would you see it from their perspective? And really help them kind of navigate through that scenario Mm -hmm. and take on a different perspective so that they can be the best version of themselves as they uh, work through that key transition with their employee. Mm. So I do think that that is a really impactful part of the programming that we provide because the manager really gets to get into the details and find that support. But I recognize that it is challenging, you know, to just talk about the theory, talk about the numbers and, you know, talk about all the data because it doesn't feel real and you're not really sure. And a lot of times it gets packaged in to bias training where there's one example about a pregnant woman and, you know, or uh, a family as part of a much more broad training on bias and so it gets lost and so we like to really intervene at the moment when it's actually happening with that manager and with that employee. That's,
0: yeah and it sounds really useful. I'm trying to imagine a sort of <laughs> some of the I'm trying to imagine some of the people I know some of the sort of dudes I know. I mean I live in Singapore it's very sort of banking, shipping, a lot of sort of very male-dominated industries here. I'm trying to imagine some of the guys I know. Like, okay, so imagine you're uh, returning from maternity leave. This is what you're thinking. This is what you're feeling. I am i can't imagine anyone taking it. Oh, they it. felt
1: super awkward, <laughs> yeah. let me tell you. They were not exactly thrilled with me, but they took it, took it with stride and they all, they all eventually did it. And I think it definitely helped people start to think outside the box a little bit. Okay, I'm so glad to hear.
0: Okay, Mary Beth. When you're working with mothers transitioning back into work after maternity leave, what are the biggest issues that come up again and again? And how are you helping people work through this?
1: Yeah, I think everyone coming back into the office after or coming back to work, regardless of even if they're going into an office, right? Whether you're logging onto a computer from home or you're going into an office or going into uh, another place of work, There is this expectation, I think, that sometimes we have of ourselves, but absolutely that others have of us, that we're supposed to be exactly who we were when we walked out the door. And yet everything has changed in our lives, even if this is something where we're adding to our family. Maybe we're already a parent or caregiver and we're just adding, but it's still a big shift in our families. And yet there is little recognition that we're going through this big shift. And so this expectation that we show up and we're exactly who we are means that we're supposed to also act and do and spend the same amount of time and all of those things. And so I think most of the conversations that I have with women returning is around asking for what they need and feeling like they have a lack of agency around being able to get the additional support get the flexibility that they need, ask for that additional time off, look for support or programs to really help them navigate the transition. They're always having to ask for that support from somebody who is more senior than them. They're going to a manager or a boss. And so there's a lot of fear in that, you know, that they feel like they don't have that ability to ask for that because you know, what if they're not allowed to? Or or you know, if they ask for it, well then they're gonna be shown, you know, that they are no longer loyal or that they're not as committed to their jobs, right? That maternal bias just comes right out of the gate. So I think there's just a lot of fear as people are returning into the office that they have to show up and be exactly who they were when in reality our whole world has changed, and we just need a little bit of space and time to be able to navigate through that and support as well. Hey,
0: sorry to so rudely interrupt my own conversation, but I just wanted to let you know that this is a Tiger Hall podcast. Tiger Hall is the world's leading social learning platform, and we have hundreds of interviews just like this with amazing senior business leaders from around the world. These can all be accessed via the Tiger Hall app, which is free to download, you get free content every month, and new stuff is uploaded every workday. I hope to see you there. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a brilliant person called Rebecca Orme. It was a couple of years ago now we did this we did this recording, but she described her first day back after maternity leave and she was on the on the subway in New York and she's like I've got my laptop under one arm and I've got my bag with my breast pump in my other and all I can I've just just described this swirl of emotions where it's not only having to get back into the swing of things work-wise but deal with this storm of emotions and guilt at leaving her child it was just a lot.
1: Right and you're you know you're navigating all of those feelings of Who am I supposed to be? Who did I think I was going to be? Who do I want to be, right? And and what are all those different personas that are coming up for me? And there's a lot of should. I should be feeling this way. I should be feeling a different way. I should be really upset I'm going back to work, or I should be really thrilled I'm going back to work. And so, I think we each process it really differently. And yet, there's this kind of expectation that we're all supposed to just show up and be thrilled to be back at work. And quite frankly, particularly in the U.S., but many countries, we're doing it way too early, right? We're going back into work well before we're really ready to and well before we should be separating from our children as well.
0: Hmm. So dealing with this sort of the emotional side of the transition, how are you working with mums in a sort of practical way and giving them the the steps and the the tools to make this transition easier?
1: Yeah. So I think the first thing that is most important is to acknowledge what the situation really is. So for the women that I'm working with, and because I am US-based, predominantly the majority of the the couples that I work with and the women that I work with are U.S.-based. We do have global clients, but a lot of them are are here. And so most of these women are going back to work somewhere between 10 and 20 weeks postpartum. And they're the lucky ones. Remember, uh, in the U.S., 25% of women go back to work two weeks after having a baby, which is the most insane situation in the world. However, um, so we start with that because I want them to recognize that it is not normal, that they are not supposed to feel normal, that this isn't something that they should feel like they should be able to do really easily, that going back into a work world and separating from your two-month-old or your four-month-old is easy and dropping them off in a daycare setting or having another caregiver come to your home is just like natural because it isn't. And so I always want to start with grounding them that they're in a very difficult situation. And so it's okay to have any emotion that they do. Mm. And then we get into more of like the logistics of things and how do you actually navigate those, right? So what is the support that you need? What can you ask for? What flexibility is available for you? If you have a partner at home, how can they be supportive? Where can they step in? What are the tools or the kind of things that we can rely on, and really looking at building out their their village of support, but absolutely always just kind of grounding them in the reality of kind of the lack of systemic support that they do have.
0: Mm. And so, when you work with companies as well, how are you helping them to make sure that uh, there is more support that this isn't such a <laughs> emotional roller coaster and. Fraught with
1: so many issues. Yeah. So I think one of the the most important things that we focus on at Work360 is really educating and training the manager. And we absolutely continue to provide one-on-one and community support for the parents and the caregivers going through that transition because they absolutely need it. But we also want to give those tools and resources and education to their direct managers so that they can support them every day, so that they can be checking in on them and so that they can be really having very open-ended and positive conversations. And so instead of the new parent coming back into work, having to ask for time to go pump or for the new flexible schedule or to be able to leave right at 5 p.m. so that they can go pick up their child from daycare or, you know, relieve a nanny or their partner at home. We want those managers to be checking in on them and saying, how can I support you? Are you nursing? Do you need to be able to take breaks? Here are the resources that we have at our organization Here's how you access those resources. Let me you know, be that support for you and be that connection point to those resources and help guide you through this transition as well, because that should be one of the roles that a manager plays in key transitions, just like they do when someone is onboarding into a team. We really consider this a re-onboarding after a key um, leave. So, when you've been out for a number of weeks or a number of months, you really should be re-onboarded and reintegrated back into the team. All I could think of there
0: is so many companies have such horrible onboarding, and I'm sure that their onboarding back after maternity leave is even worse. How many companies do you think actually do this well,
1: dare I ask? Uh, Not many. (laughs) You know, I think the problem right now is that many companies look at supporting Parents in particular, as simply a parental leave policy. Yeah. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And they don't really look at the lifespan of care and how we need to be looking at, you know, it's, it is, yes, care of, you know, newborn phase for parents, but it really is the whole lifespan and spectrum of care, right from caring for ourselves as individuals, but then recognizing that it's not just newborn care. It's, You know, parents have challenges throughout the different key transitions in their children's life. Then we also care for elders. You know, we care for our partners, our spouses. We have sick kids. Mm. I was out last week, right, for two days with two little sick girls. So it doesn't end. And I think many companies feel like, oh, well, we've handled it because we have parental leave. yeah, And they need to understand that that is just one, very important, but one piece. So I was, was going to ask you
0: about this later on. It's on my, my list of questions towards the end, but actually perfect to bring it up now. I have heard from friends who don't have children that there is sometimes a bit of that they feel feel a bit resentful when allowances are made for working parents. Oh, you know, she never has to do evening calls because you know she has kids, and everyone knows that she doesn't need to do. She doesn't work evenings. But then you know, I've got a spouse I want to hang out with. I've got
1: a mum who's maybe not doing very well. How do you deal with the,
0: the the resentment that that can that can happen?
1: It's a really important question, and I think that's where. We like to open up the conversation of care to not just be about parents. I do think that parents and particularly working moms are the canaries in the coal mine, right? If the working mom is struggling, there's definitely something that is is not working when it comes to how we center care within that organization. But at Work360, we really expand that to think about care holistically So I always think about the fact that we are going to be in one of four positions at any given time, right? We are either a caregiver right now, we are receiving care right now, we are going to be a caregiver in the future, or we are going to receive care in the future, and it's not just about caring for small children or newborns. It's caring for ourselves. It's caring, you know, as I said, around that whole lifespan of care, elder parents as well to elder community members too. Mm-hmm. And so if we can start to think about how do we just care for each other, right? How do we talk about care on our teams? How do we make sure that we're having conversations and setting boundaries So that, yes, maybe the people on our team that have small children and who are doing dinner time, maybe they're offline between 5 p.m. and 7, but maybe you're offline between 7 p.m. on when -hmm. they're maybe logging back on and getting a few more things done. Or, you know, maybe you're really protecting lunch times and you're getting to take a longer lunch or go do something in the middle of the day and run that errand that is really important to you while that new parent works through their lunch so that they can pick up their child from daycare. So just understanding that everybody has care needs and looking at how we can respect each other's boundaries and balance those needs across the entire team is really important. Yeah, it makes so much sense. It's so obvious when you say it but people aren't doing it. It's hard. Exactly. It's still hard. And it feels, you know, and I think especially when people have to cover for someone's leave in particular, it Mm. can feel really a burden. And this is again, where we lean on managers to really look at how they can position these opportunities. If someone on your team is going out on leave, how can you look at their workload and say, all right, is there an opportunity for someone to really stretch in their role and take on something that they haven't had a chance to before? Is this a leadership opportunity? Or you know, how can we divvy this up so that it isn't going to be a burden for one person or two people? How can we also really be very focused on what the priorities are within our team so that people aren't getting burnt out? And I do always recommend that managers are speaking up and advocating as well that if they have multiple people out on leave at the same time, they need to be asking for additional support to their leadership too, and so that they're getting that extra hand or you know, borrowing someone from another team, even if it's part-time or whatever resources they might need to Mm. ensure that the work gets done too. Yeah. One thing I've heard from quite a few people
0: is one really hard thing that isn't spoken about very much is getting back into the workforce after you've taken a break a couple of years out for your young kids. Then your, you know, your experience,
1: your qualifications
0: are out of date and you're lacking confidence What's your advice here?
1: It is really challenging, and I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's absolutely difficult, and I think there's a few things. Number one, we are starting to see organizations be more open to gaps on resumes just in general. They're recognizing that there are a lot of different reasons why people are taking time off. So that's helpful. It's not super helpful, but it, it does make it a little bit no- more normal. I think. The second thing is to really look at your experiences outside of the work uh, workforce and translate them into more work-related terms. So how can you talk about your experiences at home in how they translate to work? So, okay, sleep training. I know it seems totally crazy and has nothing to do with work, but... If you are thinking about sleep training your child, you probably have done at least a few hours of research. You've looked at different types of scenarios, different types of ways that you could approach it. You have gotten buy-in from some key stakeholders, likely your partner or spouse, if you have one to find out you know if they're on board with this. Um, you've maybe even done some focus groups by talking to your friends and your peers about their experience and what happened. And then you've done a trial run with your baby to see how it went. And you know you, you've started that experience. and ultimately, you decide if you're going to you know choose one path and you create a plan and then you go ahead and kind of execute that plan. So, you are doing work every single day. I mean, we talk about being a stay at home mom as like one of the hardest jobs in the world, and it absolutely is. And so, I think we need to start to think about how we can share some of those experiences because, as working parents, but especially as stay at home parents, we are learning skills of adaptability, empathy. Um, you know, project management, crisis management, negotiation, if you've ever negotiated with a toddler, oh my goodness, it is, it's (laughs) challenging, you know, so it's, then how can you share that with people that you would potentially be working with? I don't want to also say that that's going to just get you right in the door, because I do think then you have to take some additional steps to really show that you're ready and dedicated to being back. So if you've been out for a few years, what's the industry that you're going back into, you know, making sure that you are participating in that industry, whether it's getting back into, you know, particularly like networking groups or doing industry webinars or just getting kind of back into the knowledge of that industry, reading, you know, publications or or trade publications for your industry, just so that you have kind of the latest and greatest on what's going on. I absolutely think networking becomes really critical, getting back to connecting with individuals and sharing with them your experiences. There are a lot of programs now around re-entering the workforce, so that can absolutely be helpful as well as a way to connect back in with companies or to even look at the companies who are using re-entry programs. So even if you aren't going through one, it's a good way to say like, hey, these companies are using them, so they might be more open to me even if I'm not going directly through this like re-entry program, they just generally have been hiring people who've taken a break from the workforce. So they might be more open to my experience. So having that additional showing and demonstrating that you've done that additional work I think is really critical as well. And then if you have a specific like skill set that needs to be brushed up you know, if you are a coder and you need to learn a new coding language or you need to brush up on a skill set, like that's absolutely something super critical to make sure that you've done that before you're kind of asking to get back in the workforce. Yeah. What's
0: that saying that people say, well, if you want something, if you want to get something done, ask a mom. Exactly.
1: Ask the busiest mom in the world in the room and she'll get it done for
0: sure. So the mental load is something that people keep mentioning to me. And I I, I don't think anywhere else in this trail someone has actually laid out what this is and why it's such an issue. I wonder if you could just do that for us.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the mental load is really everything that goes into conceiving and planning a task. And so this actually comes also from the work that I do with Fairplay and with Eve Rodsky. And so we talk about the mental load in a lot of different ways. You know, sometimes we talk about like the invisible work. We sometimes talk about like she fault or kind of default parent. But It's also been referred to as like the ticker tape in your head, right? It's like all the things that are just running that running list. But when you really think about the mental load, I think about it too as the strategy piece. Okay. Actually, I think a really good example (laughs) of the mental load comes especially around childcare in the summer. So in the summer, especially in the U.S., we have about an eight-week gap with no school. So, you have to figure out where your kids are going to be, mm-hmm. right? Great. Summer camp. The conception piece is that you know your kids have to go somewhere, but you also know have to know when to sign them up, which means that you also have to be part of like the mom text chain. That is telling you when all of the signups are, and what are the popular camps, and what is the most exciting ones, and what are the ones that people really actually want to go to and actually have fun at, and what are the ones that are terrible and please definitely don't go there. So you've <laughs> got to be part of that group so that you know exactly when to sign up, and then you have to know when the signups actually open and how to log in, and do you have to be there in person, or do you have to sign up, and is it you know fully refundable, or what are the the things that you need to know ahead of time, and then all right, the planning, okay which weeks are we all going to this one? And who's going to this? And what groups are going together? And it becomes literally a, I don't know, full-time job for about a full week of your life just to plan summer camp, right? So that's, it's not just even getting them to camp in the summer, that's the execution. Now, my amazing husband is great at dropping them off at summer camp, Right? Picking mm. them up from summer camp. That's amazing, that execution. But all of that conception, all of that knowing to be part of the text chain, knowing to ask the right questions, knowing to get on those lists, knowing to do the research, and then starting to do all that planning of what weeks are we going to be in town and we need care? What weeks are we taking vacation? What are all of their friends doing? And coordinating all of that, that's the mental load.
0: I feel tired just listening to
1: <laughs> listening to all that. How do you help people manage that? I think the number one thing with the mental load is giving it visibility. It's really hard because a lot of it is that ticker tape in your head. Yeah. And we're constantly thinking about it. It never shuts off. It's the thing that keeps a lot of us up at night, and it's hard for us to turn it off. It's difficult to raise awareness around because it isn't executed, it isn't visible. So when you start to really share with other people what goes into the task, that it's not just signing them up for summer camp and taking them to summer camp and picking them up and making sure that they had a great day, right? It's all of these other pieces and really starting to lay that out for your partner and recognizing that that is important and valuable piece to your family, helping kind of unearth that, that it's not just summer camp, right? That's times a hundred times a thousand other things that we do. Mm -hmm. And then really starting to strategize with your family members on like, how are you going to start to help share that mental load with them so that it's not always on you? And that's one thing that Again, with Fair Play, that's the system we use, and it really has helped my husband and I and so many of my clients be able to give that visibility to say, okay, that can that mental load is that conception and planning piece. And not only are we going to split up some of the execution, which we had already b- been doing, but I'm going to also task you with the conception and the planning. Like, can you take the entire conception and planning and also complete it to the false extent, too. So right. I don't have to remind you or nag you, because none of us want someone nagging. No. None of us wants to be the nag. Exactly. And that, that's, I think, what's always so surprising to me, is when a partner is like, oh, don't nag me. I'll get around to it. And then it's like, well, will you just make sure you remind me? I'm like, well, which is it? <laughs> it can't be both. Mm. So you got to just own it.
0: You just got go. Yeah. So one thing Juliana um, in this trail said is that um, the, the data shows that women are doing more of this mental load, mm-hmm. but men are sure that they are doing the same amount of work.
1: Well, I think one of the things that really helps a lot of the men that I work, up, work with is many of them will say to me, well, if, if my partner would just tell me what to do, I'd be happy to help. And I always start with, okay, let's think about that phrase, happy to help. Are you a partner in the home? Or are you a helper? Mm. And then the next piece is if you are at work, do you go into your boss every day and say, how can I help today? Or do you walk into your job and have your list of things that you need to accomplish and your meetings to go to and you know who to contact and you know who you need to engage to get things done? Probably the latter. Right? So that's usually what your partner is looking for in the home. They want you to be able to come yeah. in and know what you own so that you can come in and say, "Okay, I know what I'm going to do. I know I I don't have to ask. I don't have to say, "How can I help?" because mm-hmm. I already know the pieces that I own in the home. Okay, Mary Beth, what
0: can leaders do? What can individuals do to make being a working mom just a little bit less shit? such a great question.
1: The number one thing that I would love everyone to do is simply parent out loud, care out loud, share out loud. Just talk about how we actually are working moms, working dads, working caregivers. I distinctly remember sitting in a women's leadership conference that I had organized and put on. And a very senior woman at our financial firm got up and shared with everyone how sorry she was that she had hidden being a parent for years, that she never talked about it with her clients. She never talked about it with her team. She never had pictures in her office. And while I think that that extreme is starting to dissipate, there is still that extreme out there, but we also need people to feel more comfortable not only having a picture of their family in their office or on their desk, but also talking about You know, I am leaving the office because I have to take my kid to the pediatrician or I'm leaving the office because I'm going to my child's art show or because I am caring for myself and going to a yoga class. Whatever it is, I think the more that we can care and parent out loud, the more we can normalize it and the more that we can have men join us in this, the better off we all will be
0: amazing. Mary Beth, thank you so much. Thank you. I feel like I could have kept talking to Mary Beth for a long time. She's really fun to talk to. A lot of things she shared really resonated with me. I'm going to call out just a couple of them here. One is that we and organisations should start thinking about caregiving holistically. And a lot of companies look at supporting parents as simply offering a parental leave policy. And that's where it ends. We also discussed how returning to work after maternity requires a sort of re-onboarding that most companies simply don't do. This harks back to what Lindsay Blakey said earlier in the trail when we were talking about parental leave policies and how this phase is crucial for retaining your talent. I also loved Mary Beth's breakdown of the mental load and the invisible work that tends to fall on women's shoulders. Going back to the Iceland story I shared right at the beginning of this episode, They made a very clear point about this all the way back in 1975. I wonder what would happen if the rest of the world's female population now all downed tools for a day. Following this would certainly make for a very interesting podcast trail. Let me know if anyone's up for it. Next in the trail, we're going to be speaking to Vrushali Gord about the challenges facing single mothers in the workplace today. You've been listening to a Tiger Hall podcast. Quick favour. If you like this content, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a new upload from us. And of course, if you're hungry for more, and why wouldn't you be, don't forget to download the Tiger Hall app for hundreds more just like this.